chairs. The heading is Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Um, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And I I think uh, that's a a very appropriate uh, heading for this passage. Uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem back in in chapter 9, verse 51, the verse I think Jack spoke on last Sunday. We read it, Jesus uh, set set out resolutely to to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, this is a major turning point. He's come into the world. He's, He's ministered in Galilee. And at that point, he begins to head from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He has to go uh, to Jerusalem. And every now and again, Luke reminds us of that uh, in uh, his gospel. Even in in the beginning of of chapter 19, at verse 11, it says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus now has set out to go to Jerusalem He's approaching Jerusalem. He's almost there. It's near the end of his journey. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. The question I want to ask this morning is, well, what sort of king is he? What sort of king is Jesus? I mean, there are all sorts of kings and queens, uh, all sorts of rulers of monarchs. I mean, our own queen is a what we would call a constitutional monarch. You know, her powers are, are very limited in a sense. She's more a figurehead uh, for the nation. Uh, if you go back in history, though, in the 18th century, many of the kings and rulers were what were called absolute monarchs or despots, and their powers were unlimited by uh, parliament or law or the courts or anything else. So what kind of king is Jesus? As he comes to Jerusalem... Uh, That's been his goal, that's been his focus, that's what he's been heading towards. This is very significant. He's coming to Jerusalem, uh, and he's coming as a king. But what sort of a king is he? Well, I think there are at least four things we can see in the passage here. And the first is that Jesus is the promised king. He comes as the promised king. The king that God has promised to send to his people to deliver them. Um, There's a lot about the donkey here. Isn't there? These first few uh, verses of our passage, really from verse 28 uh, down uh, to about verse uh, 36 or 37. The donkey figures prominently. And it's the same in all the accounts uh, of Palm Sunday and Matthew and Mark and, and John, they all place uh, a great deal of importance, it seems, on the donkey. You know, uh, Jesus you know, specifically sends two disciples to fetch this donkey. You know, um, how did he know this donkey would be there tied up? Was it supernatural knowledge um, because he was the son of God uh, and he knew these things? Um, or was he, had he made some prior arrangement that we're not told about? We don't know. But he certainly, you know, very deliberately and specifically tells two disciples to go into this village and fetch back this donkey that's there. Um, 
And he said, if anyone uh, says, why are you doing this? He's to say to them, the Lord has need of it. I mean, that's repeated twice. The Lord has need of it. Why did Jesus need this donkey? This young donkey, this colt? Um, why, why does he need the donkey? Well, it's not, it's not because he's tired. It's not because he's tired. He says, oh, I'm fed up walking all this way from Galilee to Jerusalem. I think I'll ride the last little bit on a donkey. No, he, he, he's fit, healthy. Uh, he's a, a, a mature man, but he's full of energy and vigor. Uh, he's not tired. All the pilgrims who came up to Jerusalem entered Jerusalem on foot. Why does Jesus need a donkey? Well, I think it's because he wants to make a statement. He wants to make a statement to the people there about what sort of king he is. He is a king that has been promised. The other... um, Accounts, uh, both in, in Matthew and Mark, they quote the prophet Zechariah at this point. Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9, uh, which says, See your king. Sorry, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Uh, Luke doesn't actually quote those words, but they're found in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. They quote them. And maybe Luke felt, well, he was writing for more a Gentile audience, and he probably thought he didn't need to do that. They would get the point. Jesus is riding on the donkey because the prophet Zechariah had foretold that that's how the Messiah, the God's anointed one, the king that he was going to send to deliver them from their enemies, that that's how he would enter the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. He would come, this promised king would come riding on a donkey. And they recognized that he was a king. I mean, they recognized, they greeted him as a king. They say in verse uh, eight, uh, sorry, verse uh, 20, 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They know he's a king, promised king, coming, riding on a donkey. You see, they were coming to the fulfillment of all God's promises. I mean, uh, the, the Bible really is one big story about how God has sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sins and give us eternal life. And Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He is that supreme king, that unique king, that king that God has sent, that divine king, to come to save us. You know, God is a God who has purposes, who has makes plans and he makes promises and keeps them. And that's what's happening here. I mean, usually at, at, at Christmas time we think of many of the promises about uh, the birth of Jesus 
Uh, on Good Friday, we think of some of the promises, some of the passages in the Old Testament which foretold the suffering and death of Jesus. Well, here is a promise, a specific promise made that Jesus would come to Jerusalem as a king, the promised king. God makes and keeps his promises. And Jesus makes promises that one day he will return, not not in weakness, not not, not simply with his glory hidden, but he'll come with power and glory to make everything new. Uh, to bring about peace and justice, uh, to create a new world. And God makes promises and he keeps those promises. And that's the hope that we have, that this world is not just going to uh, go, you know, descend into chaos, but God will send his Son in power and glory to create a new world in which righteousness and peace will reign. So he's the promised king. He's the promised king. But there is something more here. Uh, I think he's also a humble king. You know, if we could just think about the little donkey again uh, for a while. I mean, I don't have a great experience of donkeys. But whenever I, I, always, I always think they're, they're nice little animals. You know, they're so, they look quiet and, and docile and... Um, uh, it takes me back to my childhood. Uh, I can remember when I was a wee boy, you know, one of the highlights of the summer holidays in Port Stewart was a ride on the donkey along the Strand. And I, I don't know much it cost, whether it was sixpence or two and sixpence or whatever it was in those days. But uh, you had a little ride. You got on the donkey and somebody would probably lead it and you maybe walked a hundred yards up the beach and then you would turn round and you would walk uh, back down a bit. You know, that was... That was the excitement which we had in those days as, as children. You know, a donkey ride. And you know, I suppose the donkeys were chosen for that because, well, they were, they were gentle, docile animals. Um, uh, they were humble, a humble beast of burden. Sometimes donkeys were used in the past to, to work, to carry burdens, carry people. Uh, and this is a donkey. And Jesus arrives on the donkey, uh, not on a thoroughbred stallion. You know, I'm not really into horse racing, but I couldn't escape the fact that yesterday was the Grand National, and you looked at some of those horses, and they were magnificent-looking animals in peak condition. But Jesus doesn't come riding on a, a thoroughbred stallion. He comes riding on a donkey. He, he doesn't come in full uh, battle array. He doesn't come wielding a sword. He comes humbly uh, on a, a donkey. He, he doesn't come leading a rebellion. He doesn't come to stir up the crowd and march on, on Pilate's palace. He comes humbly riding uh, on a donkey. He comes actually not to Not to start a war, but to bring peace. Peace between God and man. Uh, If you just glance back at at chapter 18, uh, verse 31, it says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, 
And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He's going up to Jerusalem as the promised king, the one that God had promised through the prophets. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. I mean, he had explicitly told his disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem not to kill anybody, but for him himself to lay down his life for us. He's a humble king who comes riding in to Jerusalem. So Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the humble king who comes to lay down his life, to suffer and die, and to bring peace between God and man. But Jesus is also a divisive king. If you look at verse 37, it says that... um, Verse 36, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. You know, again, this is a recognition that he is a king. They do realize he is a king. I mean, they do say in verse 38, blessed is the king. Um, And so they do. It's like we would sometimes talk about rolling out the red carpet for someone. Uh, You know, some dignitary who's visiting or some... The Oscars, uh, you know, the ceremony, they would roll out the red carpet. Uh, Sometimes I've seen at hotels, you know, when the bride is coming, they roll out the red carpet. Well, this is a kind of equivalent here. They lay down their cloaks. They throw cloaks in the donkey for Jesus to sit on. And then they spread their cloaks um, on the road for, you know, it's a mark of of, uh, honor, of respect, of uh, you know, homage that they're paying to him. This is the king who's coming. Um, and, and they're very excited about this. Uh, the other gospels say that they wave palm branches. And that was a symbol of, uh, 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 of, of, of Israel. It was a, a nationalistic kind of symbol. It's a way in which you know, if the queen comes as a crowd and they'll be waving their union jacks. So here's the crowd uh, and they recognize Jesus. They think he's a king who's come to deliver them. Uh, so they, they spread their cloaks down. They shout Hosanna. Uh, and it says they, uh, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So, you know, this, a crowd, I mean, it was Passover time. Jerusalem was packed. There's thousands of people there. They see Jesus coming on this donkey. They think this is the king who's come to deliver us. They get excited. They're exuberant. They're enthusiastic. They're waving uh, the palm branches. They're throwing down their cloaks. They're shouting with loud voices. They're full of joy. You know, Jesus is popular with the crowd. He's popular. They're enthusiastic. Uh, They're welcoming him. They're excited. They have great expectations of what Jesus is going to do for them. But we have to also say that they seem to have been rather fickle, changeable. 
you know, where were these people at the end of the week after Jesus had been arrested? When Pilate offered the people the choice of having Jesus released or Barabbas, when they said, do you want me to release Jesus or do you want this notorious criminal Barabbas released? Um, the crowd shouted out, you know, away with him, crucify him. We don't want Jesus. You know, it's, I think it's very telling that, it, 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 um, that the crowd then, it says in chapter 23, verse 18, with one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Uh, in verse 20, uh, 20, it says, Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I, ha- I, have, I-, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him pun- punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. I mean, less than a week before that, the crowd had been shouting, praising him, acknowledging him as king, all very excited, you know, supporting him. And within a few days, it seems they've completely changed. Why the turnaround? Why the change in attitude? Or it seems... That Jesus had not come up to their expectations. They thought that Jesus, the miracle worker, they're excited because of the miracles they had seen. They thought Jesus had come and he was going to drive out the Romans. He was going to establish a new regime. Uh, They thought that Jesus would lead some kind of armed rebellion and make the Jews into an, an independent nation again. But Jesus has already explained over and over again, at least three times it's recorded, that Jesus says to his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die and be crucified and then rise again. But they hadn't got it. Not just the crowd, but even the disciples themselves just hadn't got it, what Jesus' mission really was. So these people... I think their expectations of Jesus were disappointed. And so they drifted away or they came out and shouted against him and they rejected him. And you know, sometimes people begin to follow Jesus enthusiastically. They think that Jesus will solve all their problems, that everything will get better. Maybe they expect him to improve their marriage or make their children behave better, or heal them from some serious illness. But then they discover that they still have problems. Maybe sometimes even their problems get worse. It doesn't meet their expectations, and they drift away, and they stop following, and maybe they even turn against it. We do need to be clear 
about what Jesus promises to do for us now and what he doesn't. He promises to forgive us our sins now. He he, he promises to give us eternal life beginning now. He promises to adopt us into his family so that we can come to him as our father in heaven now. He, 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 he promises to give us his Holy Spirit to be within us and help us to live in a way which is pleasing to him now. He promises to do these things for us now. But he doesn't promise to heal all our diseases. He, he doesn't promise to make us rich. He doesn't promise to solve all our problems. You know, he doesn't promise uh, to shield us from persecution or rejection. See, and sometimes people get the wrong idea of what you know, becoming a Christian means. They think, you know, they look to Jesus, maybe they, they think, well, now he'll, he'll help me and solve all my problems for me. Yes, he will help you, but it may not mean that he's going to take your problems away. He's going to help you through those problems and difficulties. He's not going to remove them from you. You see, we we need to have the right expectations of Jesus. What he will promise us to do for us now, and what we have to wait for that he will do for us then in the future. And I think what happens here is that the crowd have wrong expectations of Jesus. They expect him to be the miracle worker. And to to solve all their problems for them now. And when that doesn't happen, when Jesus is arrested, when he's put on trial, they melt away. And there are those disillusioned, disappointed, who shout out in rejection of him. So Jesus arrives, comes to Jerusalem. He is very popular it seems although there are others who do reject him I mean if you look at verse uh, 39 some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus teacher rebuke your disciples I mean there were those who, who weren't as excited there, weren't those, there were those who weren't waving any flags there were those who, you know, who weren't shouting out uh, with joy there were the, the gloomy, grumbling Pharisees who resented Jesus, who resented his popularity, who saw him as a threat to their power. And so they say to Jesus, look, rebuke these people. Stop them from doing this. So that Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You know, he, he, he endorses the fact, he agrees that, in a sense, the people have got it right. He is a king. It's just they haven't understood yet what kind of king he is. And he's saying, well, yes, I, but I am a king. And if these people don't uh, shout out and proclaim that, the whole of creation will do that. Even the inanimate stones. But you see, they were here, and as you read through the Gospels, you discover this again and again. There are people who are for Jesus, but there are people who are against him. There are those who accept Jesus, and those who reject him. There are those who believe in Jesus, 
And there are those who dismiss Jesus. I mean, that's why I say Jesus is a divisive king. He does divide. And he continues to divide. He continues to divide today. We're here this morning gathered together as people who believe in Jesus. But out there in our community, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have no time for Jesus, who dismiss him, who reject him, who ignore him. You know, Jesus is a divisive figure and, you know, at some point each person has to make up his or her own mind. Are they for Jesus or are they against him? Are they going to accept him as who he claims to be or are they going to reject him? It's inescapable. We can't avoid it. Jesus does divide. We can't sit on the fence. You know, if you've been trying to sit on the fence and, you know, keep a foot maybe on both sides, it's impossible. You have to decide, are you for Jesus or are you against him? Jesus is a king. He's a promised king. He's a humble king, but he's also a divisive king. And the last thing I think which we see here is that Jesus is a, a weeping king. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He's coming down the Mount of Olives uh, towards Jerusalem and he looks across the Kidron Valley uh, to the city itself and he sees this great city teeming with people crowded for the Passover celebrations. Uh, And he seems to break down and weep. And the, the word here that's used for um, him weeping uh, means something like he sobbed uncontrollably. There's another word which is sometimes used for crying or weeping, and it's more the idea of just like tears gently trickling down a person's face. Quiet, just a quiet, quiet silent kind of weeping but here it's as if he's convulsed he's he's, he's sobbing the word actually we get our English word lament from it He's, he's lamenting the city you know why is he Weeping like this. Well, because he saw that this was a people who were ignorant of his true identity. He sees this as a, a city where by and large the people have, will reject him. This is a city which will ultimately face God's judgment. And he cares. That's it, he cares. He sees this, he sees this great crowd of people and he sees that they're spiritually blind. That they don't see who he truly is and what he has come to do. And, and they're one day going to face God's judgment. He refers here to the coming of the Romans against Jerusalem in AD 70 and the whole city is devastated. 
But he's a king who weeps for those who have rejected him. He weeps for those who are lost. He weeps for those who do not know him. He weeps for those who are under God's judgment. This is the kind of king that he is. He's a weeping king. God says in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your your evil ways. Why will you die, O Jerusalem? The Apostle Paul concluded his uh, farewell address to the Ephesian elders by saying, Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. It said of D.L. Moody, American evangelist in the 19th century, that he could never speak of a lost soul without tears in his eyes. Jesus is the weeping king. He cares about those who will one day face God's judgment. And I think the challenge for us is really to say, well, how much do we care about those around us who are under God's judgment? Those who are ignorant about him. Those who are indifferent to him. Those who reject him. Do we care? Do we really care? Our family, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. How much do we really care? Well, that you know, God would give us the compassion that He has for those who are lost. So here's Jesus. He enters Jerusalem. As king. He's the promised king. He's the humble king. He's the divisive king. He's the weeping king. Jesus set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem because there he was going to suffer and die for our sins and on the third day rise again. To give forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who trust in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into this world. He came and laid aside his glory. He laid aside his majesty. He lived amongst men and women. And then, having revealed God to man, he set out for Jerusalem, where he would suffer and die for our sins. We pray that you might help us to see Jesus in all his power and glory and majesty. Help us to see him as he truly is. And help us to accept him and to trust in him and to follow him, and to care as he cares. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.